Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the final episode of Eat Drink Asia for 2018. I'm Bernice Chan. And I'm Alkira Reinfrank. This week, one of the biggest food events of the year took place for us foodies. It was the announcement of the Michelin Guide for 2019 for Hong Kong and Macau. And Bernice actually got to go along. How was it? Any major surprises? Well, I was really happy to see Caprice in the Four Seasons Hong Kong and Jade Dragon in City of Dreams both get finally get their three stars. But I was also very surprised to see Alan Ducasse at Morpheus get two stars. And this is only after six months after it opened. Is that possible? Six months, it has no stars and suddenly it goes up to two? Is that something fishy there? What's going on? So the general rule is that they're supposed to be open for about a year. Mm. And we've had cases of of restaurants getting stars less than a year later. Mm -hmm. And it is possible to jump from zero to two. Mm. But what about with uh, so with Alan Ducasse? I know you know you ate there recently, uh, and you were you know you were slightly critical of him getting two stars. Why is that? Well, I had already heard before I went that the food wasn't quite up to Alan Ducasse's standards, and so I was hoping a few months after, if I when I go, that things would be better. But I have to say, some of the dishes were just slightly off in terms of somewhere of presentation and some in terms of taste. Overall, the, the, the restaurant itself is beautiful. The, the service is impeccable. But the food itself, it still needs a bit of work. What about, were there any surprises in terms of uh, restaurants dropping stars? Yeah, we did see a few of them drop. Um, Shang Palace in the Kowloon Shangri-La, they had two stars and they dropped to one, but that's partly because they changed the chef. And then there are others who completely dropped off the list, like on a cram and Peking Garden, which I think they serve really good Peking duck, but I guess it wasn't for the Michelin inspectors. And, you know, did you get a chance to speak to some of the chefs that were there? What was the vibe in the room? Do you think, uh, do these chefs really live and die by the Michelin Guide? Well, it's really nice to see them all together because usually you see them individually cooking in their own respective restaurants. And for them, it's a nice event for them to be able to hang out and you see who's hanging out with who. And some of them were just absolutely thrilled to receive their star, like the chef at uh, New Punjab Club. Mm, Palash Mitra. He's really great. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a video of him um, just receiving the news and he was just so overwhelmed. He would just put his hands over his face, just like so like floored. And meanwhile, Mm. everyone around him was dancing and jumping around and screaming. So overall, a uh, really great e- uh, evening for food in Hong Kong and Macau. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. As um, one of the chefs remarked to me yesterday uh, from Boulogne, he was saying it's a good list and it's a very diverse list. We're having more Indian restaurants and more Japanese restaurants in there. Maybe we'll see Korean. 
Who knows? Was there any restaurants that uh, you wish you would have seen there that didn't quite make the mark? Now, there's one restaurant I haven't tried yet. It's called Yi, mm-hmm. and it's in the same uh, hotel Morpheus that Alan Ducasse is in. And I heard they do amazing contemporary Chinese food. So I'm very surprised that Michelin totally overlooked this place. We'll have to see for next year. That's right. Now, talking about uh, star chefs, when you think about British chefs who specialize in Italian cuisine, I say one man probably comes to mind, and that's the naked chef, Jamie Oliver. But where did he get his skills from? British chef Theo Randall has taught him all he knows about Italian. He has a restaurant in Hong Kong called Theo Mistral in the Intercontinental Grand Stanford. And we caught up with him last time he was in the city to find out how a Brit can cook Italian. How did you get into food in the beginning? Why, why, why do you love the culinary industry? Well, I have to thank my parents for that because um, my parents are both real foodies. And um, from a very young age, we, I, I used to cook. My mother she used to make bread all the time. And I'd always help her bake. And she's a very good cook. And uh, we used to go on these amazing holidays to France and Italy. And we would go and visit these uh, um, museums and things. My, fa- my father's an architect, my mother's an artist, and they were both really into going to these uh, museums along with my sisters. And I used to find it quite boring as a child, but at the end of it, there was always good food. And we used to go to lots of restaurants. And that, from a very young age, I was absolutely bowled over by how exciting restaurants were. Mm-hmm. And, and food, I mean, I, I was the most unfussy child. I would go to school with homemade bread and gorgonzola sandwiches where everyone else had wow. plastic bread and crisps. I was the, I was the, un, I was the unusual one. <laughs> Are you still you know, so excited about food? Do you still have that, that excitement that you had as a child? Even more. It's funny. I just, the, the thing about food is it's, it's so exciting all the time. There's so many interesting ingredients. And restaurants and food really is, I think, I don't know, I just was put on this earth to be involved in uh, restaurants and food, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's something I love to do. And I, the thing about restaurants is I like to make people feel happy. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important thing. People coming to your restaurant and feeling happy, having a smile on their face when they leave. Because, you know, you can go anywhere you want, but if they come to your restaurant, that's a compliment in itself. But when they do come to your restaurant, you've got to make sure that they have a great experience. Mm-hmm. So really, um, ha- having a restaurant here is, is, uh, is, is a real treat. And, and what do you like about Italian food? And in particular, what do Italian people think of your food? <laughs> well, I'll ask the second question first. Uh, Italian, Italian people, um, we have a lot of regular Italians. And, and the first they come, they're like, oh, a bit skeptical about this English man cooking Italian food. But what they love is the fact that there's the authenticity about it. Because we, you know, I, I've studied the Italian kitchen and spent a lot of time, you know, going to Italy. And for me, um, Italian food is about simplicity. And, you know, the, the term less is more applies to more many other cuisine. Uh, it's, it's a lot about uh, good produce and not mucking it around too much. I think a lot of Italian restaurants tend to um, overwork their food. And if you go to Italy, the trattorias is where you get the real Italian food. And it's very, very simple. So I just like to take a bit of my, my take on Italian food. But it's very much about keeping the simplicity of it. Italian food for me, though, is something that I've, I've just, it found me, I think. I think it's one of those cuisines that is so interesting. It's so regional. Um, I, I get inspired by the, uh, the, the, the regions of Italy, but I also get inspired by the ingredients. So we try and have that philosophy of finding as much local ingredients and um, producing food that you can taste every ingredient in the dish uh, without making it overcomplicated and overfussy. And I think, you know, if you, if you stick to those rules and you get great fish, you get great vegetables that are local, 
uh, you can recreate Italian food in, 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 in this best essence. So you worked at River Cafe in London. How did, how did that shape you as a chef? The River Cafe was a great experience. I mean, I turned up there when it first really started in 1989, and the River Cafe had just opened in the evening, and they just got permission to open in the evening. And it was just brilliant to be working with uh, Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers, who both inspirational characters in themselves. Um, and I was at the point where the River Cafe was learning. They were both, um, they weren't professional cooks, but they had a, a very, diff very different view to restaurants, any, any other restaurant. And I think, you know, when you've got a different view, you know, things happen and you become innovative. And the food was very much about being as, as traditional as possible. Um, and this sort of open kitchen was so new. And the, the quality of the ingredients were just getting better and better. And it was a learning curve. And we went to Italy a lot and we discussed food and the menus were changing all the time. It was very creative. Some dishes would work, some dishes wouldn't be so, would work so well, but it was very creative. And um, the restaurant really found its feet and, and it had a, an amazing um, following very quickly. And its location was really quite something. It was you know, on the River Thames, uh, the most amazing view, tables outside, and people just come to it. I mean, you just get A-list Hollywood superstars sort of sitting outside next to Joe Bloggs, you know, and it was like, people were like, whoa, this place is cool. And um, being part of that is, you know, it's definitely been the right place at the right time. Uh, and I've, you know, met some amazing people, and the inspiration from that has stuck with me uh, ever since, and um, I loved every minute of my time there. Now, I understand there was some guy called Jamie Oliver who worked who? there. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, yeah. So Jamie turned up in 96, and he was a, a fresh-faced young chap with long hair, big lips, and piercing blue eyes. And he came up and said he wanted a job in the kitchen. And uh, he was fantastic. He turned up. He'd been working with Antonio Coluccio and, and Gennaro Cantaldo at the Neal Street restaurant. And they told him to come to the River Cafe because it would be a great experience to go and work in, in an Italian restaurant. Um, like the River Cafe. And uh, he just was amazing. I mean, literally, he'd spend any, any spare minute, he would help everyone. And he was a cheek, cheeky sort of chap. And, and he would laugh nonstop. And he was just, a, he was just a, a very driven person. And you could tell there was something else behind him, not just the fact he could cook, but there was this am amazing passion. And, uh, and drive and you know he used to do you know you, he'd be the last one first one in last one to leave which was uh, a credit to him how has the role of the chef changed since you got into the industry we've had the rise of the celebrity chef you know, like Jamie yeah I think um, I think chefs have changed have come up they've become they've always been sort of uh, at the forefront but I think um, they, they've come out of their kitchen to, to sell their brand more. I think it's been more acceptable they're allowed to sell their brand. I think, um, you know, you can just be just as serious as chef as before, but you now the market is so competitive, you need to have that point of difference. And being able to go to a market and actually promote yourself, whether it's on television, whether it's in, me, in any form of media. And, you know, things like media has changed. You know, there's, there's, there's a hunger, excuse the pun, for... For, for chefs, people want to, you know, know about the chef, know about their personality, you know about what their favorite dish is, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's been really uh, helped. And it's made restaurants more successful than ever before because they've got that opportunity to, um, to promote. So you have restaurants around the world. What are, what are diners like 
in London, Bangkok, and now Hong Kong. How are they similar or different? Um, they're all quite different, really. I mean, it's funny enough, we suddenly get a lot of people from Hong Kong to London now. So anyone that's traveling from Hong Kong comes to London, and vice versa with Bangkok and London. Um, you have your regulars, you have the, the, the corporate uh, dining, uh, but generally everyone wants to have a good time. And I think, you know, people use restaurants in a different way than they used to. I think there was a point where people would, Monday to Friday, it would be more about a, a meeting or a, you know, a dinner or, or a entertaining. Whereas now it's part of life. People want to go out as part of their entertainment. So on a Tuesday night, there might be a date night. They want to go out for dinner, a couple, or you might have a family coming in for uh, celebrating a birthday. It's, it's just part of our culture now, I think, all over the world. People just want to eat out um, as for entertainment. Especially in Hong Kong, as I'm sure you're aware, people eat out all the time. And people don't seem to have a lot of time to, you know, cook at home and all the space in their very, very small kitchens. Do you have any tips or what are your favourite kind of quick and easy uh, dishes to make at home? Well, my favourite quick and easy dishes is always going to involve pasta <laughs> because it is one of the most brilliant ways of cooking uh, and, and uh, you know, producing a meal very quickly. I mean, I, I've got so many recipes. I mean, I've written a, a book a few years back on pasta. There's 100 recipes in there. And I kind of, the point of the, the cookbook is that, you know, about 60% of the recipes, by the time you've actually cooked the pasta, you can make the sauce. So the whole thing shouldn't take more than like 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, that's fast food. And there's nothing wrong with fast food as long as it's got good ingredients and it's not too fatty. And so, you know, something as simple as making uh, some fresh tagliatelle with some butter and some parmesan or making uh, a, f a pesto and a pestle and mortar and just dressing some pasta. I think if you have the passion to cook and you want to do something quickly, you know, you can, make, you can make food really delicious in a very short space of time. So you don't have to go out all the time. You, could, you, could, you can whip something together at home or come out and try a beautiful pasta like we'll, we'll have here today. Well, I think, you know, if you go out to eat every day of the week, you probably get a bit bored of going out to eat, or you become incredibly lazy, or you become too fat. So I think you're better off actually having, uh, of having, this, having this skill. I say that everyone should know how to cook. Everyone should know how to cook one dish or a couple of dishes, a simple, simple dish. Um, because there's something sort of quite really comforting and nice and sociable about cooking. And if you've got, um, you know, family over or friends over and you've made some fresh pasta and you made a ragu or you made a pesto or you made something, it's so nice and there's a story behind it. You know, it's so nice to actually serve something. And even if you're, you're standing up eating it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's really good to cook at home. That was Theo Randall speaking from his restaurant, Theo Mistral. So, Bernice, how do you rate his food? It's really good. I really like the atmosphere, and it's very home style, and we all share all the food. It's And I love the um, lemon tart. Mm, delicious. And so why don't we switch over to drinks? Do you know much about sake, Akira? Mm, not much. I just enjoy drinking it, but I, I definitely can't uh, taste the difference between many of them. I just pretend like I know. <laughs> But do you like it served hot or cold? Oh, okay, that one I can answer. Yes, I prefer it so served cold. But that's because I've heard that if you drink it warm, it actually hides the flavor. That's right. So if you need some help picking the right sake to drink, maybe you should enlist the help of a sake sommelier. And for over a decade, Seju Yang has been working in New York as a sake sommelier for Brushstroke Restaurant. And we had a chat with him about how he got into the business and how his background in music influences what he does today. I moved to 
uh, Boston first, actually, uh, when I was 19. Why Boston? Yeah, Boston, because there, there's a music college called Berkeley. College uh, Berkeley music. School yes. of Music, yes. Berkeley School of Music. And I, w- I went there, and I was studying there for like 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 about a year. But I got so bored with the city because, uh, you know, and especially at the time, I was only 19 years old. I couldn't I couldn't do anything, right? In Boston, I, I didn't have a ID to have fun. <laughs> so... Because you need to be 21 exactly, to drink, yes, right? Exactly. Yes. So I was, I was so tired of the city. And when I was like a high school student, I, I was always working in the restaurant. So, and I, I loved doing service. So that passion was something that I didn't want to forget, even though I was studying music. So, so I moved to New York. I decided to move to New York. I kept studying music, and, but I also joined, uh, started working at the restaurant called Sakagura. It's uh, one of the largest, uh, happened to be one of the largest sake bars in the world, where they have like, uh, I think they still have like 250 kinds of sake open by the glass. So it's, wow. it's huge, it's a huge place. And I... So d- did yeah. you know anything about sake at that no, time? No, not at all, not at all. And that time I, I just became 21 when I uh, went to uh, Sakakura. And I very quickly fell in love with sake. And, that, and actually that was the best place to learn about sake because I can basically taste everything that is open like every day. So like I, I, I went to work like two, hour, two hours before and I, I kept tasting wine, uh, tasting sakes before I started working. And it was great study. And, but at that time, when I was like 21, I didn't know anything about wine. Though I, I loved to drink wine, but I didn't know. But w- when, when I tried to explain about sake to foreign guests, I mean the New Yorker, I couldn't really communicate well, bec- not because of my English, but it, it's because I didn't know about wines. The reason why is, for example, if I served them a certain type of sake and they commented like, uh, oh, this wine, uh, this sake tastes like, reminds me of wrestling from somewhere, somewhere, if, if that's a comment from uh, the guest. Because I didn't know anything about wine, our conversation was stopped there. So you just said, oh, right? okay. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So uh, at that time I noticed, okay, if I really want to tell a story about sake to new, new, uh, people in New York, I had to study wines. So I started to study wine. And so you st- studied wine and not sake because you might have tasted all of them, but you yeah. didn't know that much about sake? Yeah, I didn't. No, no. no I, 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 at that time, I knew about sake, but didn't know about wines. That's why I couldn't communicate with the guest. Well, so I started to study about wines, and it's just kind of my personality that once I fell in love with something, I go so deep and so quick. <laughs> so I, I started to study about wines very, very intensely. And yeah, but... And how is uh, it uh, similar to sake? Honestly, I, I, I always thought and I still think it's a very difficult type of, a very different type of drinks. And... I know there are people who like who loves to serve sake over over wine glass, but I, I personally don't like to do it because uh, for me sake is something that Japan proud, right? 
and if if we try to do in in the way that wine works, I I, I don't feel like it's it's kind of not respecting the 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 origin of the culture because the sake has been always served in a little cup, right? And it makes sense in many ways because the sake has higher alcohol, so 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 small amount of sip is better than the large large amount of uh, sip uh, through wine glasses. So there are many things that makes makes more sense serving in a traditional cup for me. Uh, sake, but so I I always think those two are very different drinks. And so. Uh when you started learning about wine, did yes. you start realizing, oh, so this is what they meant when they said something tasted like Riesling Absolutely. or like yes, yes. Pinot yes. Noir? Or... Yes, yes. I definitely did, yeah. Because the uh, uh, the majority of the aromas from, from the sake comes from the East, you know, what kind of East they use. And some of those uh, East, especially those uh, East used for Ginjo or Daiginjo, had that kind of fruity aroma, and a lot of those uh, yeast has similarity with wines, uh, a specific type of uh, white wines. Not really red, but they So when someone walks into Brushstroke and they don't know much about sake, how do you introduce them to it? What, What are the things that they really need to know to appreciate it? Well, Actually, it was it was fun to start talking with them uh, about wines first, like what kind of wine they drink, and that that often gave me a great uh, clue of what what to serve for them. I mean, if if they say they they like like fruity or Sauvignon Blanc or Riesling, yeah, the, yeah, there there are good chance they like about they like Ginjo or Daiginjo better than you know the traditional Junmai. But if they like, say they like fuller body red or like aged red or those those type of wines, yeah, maybe a better chance that they like more Junmai or Yamaha type of sake. So understanding wine definitely had uh, had a big impact for for me just about selling sake. And then how do you pair the sake with the food? Yeah, that is a one of my lifetime study for sure because. In my opinion, sake pairing is easy, but because it is easy, it's very, very difficult. You know, it, it's easy to do a good job with, with uh, sake pairing because the sake is basically a very versatile drink to pair with sake, but the sweet spot is very narrow. So it's, why it's kind of opposite, it's, uh, for me, I mean, wrestling doesn't work with every kind of food, for sure. But it works for certain kind of uh, ingredients. It, it does work very well, as, as, as far as, uh, you know, we understand well. Uh, so, so, I don't know. Just, it's, it's, for, for sake, it's just very difficult, to, uh, very easy to do good pairing, like, for me, I mean, almost everyone can do a good sake pairing easily, but to do a great sake pairing is is a tough thing. Yeah, they need to understand very deeply. Yeah, because ba- basically, uh, there are many things that sake and wines are different, and 
and of course there are common things. Basically, sake has a higher alcohol contents than wine, and and definitely more umami. No tanning or whatsoever for right. sake, right? right. Like zero tanning, because unless they use some kind of oak, which which which, which yeah, which is rare enough, rare. yeah, rare enough. And most of the time, sake is uh, very fresh, so they don't age. Of course, there are expe- exceptions, but uh, so there are very, um, many, many different things. So we, we need to, if they want to do a, a very serious sake pairing, we, we need to uh, know about the differences between one and sake. And, you know, we need to go deep. But basic theory, I believe it's very same with, with the wine pairing. For example, we, we need to match the level of the acid between food and wine. This is like one of the very, very, very basic uh, methods. It, it, it does apply to sake for sure. Like matching the level of sweetness or matching the type of the texture of the food and texture of the drink. Those kind of very basic theory is the same uh, with the wine and sake. And I just want to go back to when you were studying music. Yes, yes. You were studying music composition, is that right? Yes, exactly, yes. So was this for classical music? I was, I was actually uh, studying about uh, both classic and jazz. Jazz, yeah. wow. Yeah, many people asked me before why I'm doing, uh, why I, I was doing two very different things. But for me, it was always the same. Yes, you know. Talking about wine, expressing about wine always comes from inspirations, right? Composition always comes from inspiration. It just, it just goes to a different way. So does music still play a part in what you're doing now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't play music. I don't really play or compose music anymore. Uh, not at least not as as hard as I did I did before. But fundamentally, it, it's always same. When I when I think about, for example, when I think about pairing, I try to see the balance, right? So that what balance means for me is like melody and harmony and rhythm. For, for the music, it, it's very same thing for me. So it just, music always helps me, you know, or, or when, I try, when I try to make a big list of wine, I, I try to make it like a perfectly edited scores of music, right? Like, like a big symphony score that it has so, so, so much details written on the score and, and, and extremely well thought music, uh, score, and, and all, all those things are very same for me. Is there a particular country you're, pre- you're interested in in terms of wine at the moment? Oh, yes. Uh, personally, uh, Canada. I went to Ontario very, very recently, uh, the last year. I was quite uh, surprised. And it's, it's kind of a complex story, but, uh, you know, there are... A lot of wine regions, classic wine regions in, the, in all over the world, where they are suffering or started to suffering from global warming, or global extreming. Maybe that is a better word because you know, it's, weather is becoming so unpredictable. But such places are, as Canada, where, where the you know the winemaking region is close to latitude 50 north. Which is like a northern border for the winemaking. It 
I think it, it shows tremendous uh, potential. The, the reason why is their growing se- season is so long, they they have tendency to wait until like uh, late October or even early November, which is like two months behind from the major countries in, in Europe. So because of that, and because of the cold weather, the, the sugar of the uh, grape doesn't go up much, but fenoric ripeness meets. So what happens is it, it tastes full, but still light in alcohol. And this is, I, I think, this meets the needs of the uh, modern uh, cuisine because cuisine is uh, at a worldwide level. A lot of cuisines are getting more lighter and simpler. So I think I see a lot of uh, connection with the cuisine, cuisine and the wine from those places. And maybe there there will be more interesting wine from interesting white wine or red wines from England. Who knows? That's right. Maybe 10 years ten years later, maybe Southern Norway or Denmark. I don't know. Some places in China. That was Seiju Yang from Brushstroke in New York. We spoke to him at the Mira Hong Kong Hotel. I thought it was really interesting how his music background still influ- influences what he does with, uh, with alcohol uh, in New York. Did you come away learning something new from it? I just thought it, his background itself, like his whole story of how he was, you know, learning to compose music, and then he needed a job, so he got into, you know, learning about wine and and sake. I just thought that was just so interesting. It was amazing how he, when he got that job, and it was in a sake uh, store or restaurant, a bar, sorry, he knew nothing, and it kind of shows you how far you can really go when you find your true passion um and it just sounds amazing and i think now every time i drink sake i'll need to like really taste it and see if i can taste the fruity notes that he talks about um that a lot of people start on before going to maybe a drier tasting sake yeah and it just made it more accessible for everyone to understand a bit more about sake Can you believe it? Time has flown by. It's December. It's time to recap the year. And we started off talking about burgers. And what have we covered since? A lot of stuff. So much food. It's been a big year. It's been really good. And more burgers. More burgers. We started off with burgers at the beginning of the year, saying that there was a a wave of new burgers come to town. But that's only been extended in the last few weeks with uh, Shake Shack and and, uh, Five Five Guys as well. Yeah. And then we've also had some other stuff happening. We've had a new beer festival that opened in PMQ that shook up the craft beer community. And then unfortunately, we had a number of restaurants close this year, Mm. including Mercado, Wingwa, Moto Kiwi, and 12,000 francs. What were some of your highlights, though? I have to say the visit with celebrity chef Gagan and taking him to Wingwa Noodles one last time was really fun. And you might remember Gagan. So he's actually starred in the Netflix series Chef's Table. So he runs uh, a restaurant called Gagan in Bangkok, and he is just a ca- complete character. He he came to this restaurant. Like, I was very excited to meet him. He's such a big figure in the food industry. He rocks up in flip-flops, shorts, Mona Lisa shirt, and a shaggy top bun and was just 
it was what was it, like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., and he was already like downing a bottle of cream soda. It was a real highlight for me getting to sit down. <laughs> and he had two cream sodas throughout that it, throughout our conversation and meal. And several bowls of noodles. Yeah, many bowls of noodles. And he was just so relaxed uh, and was just he'd flown in all the way for the noodles. So that was definitely a highlight. And he was totally fine having us ask him rapid-fire questions during a Facebook Live right in the restaurant. I don't know if I'd like that. I just want to eat. But he was he he was a definitely he was definitely a good sport, <laughs> <laughs> and he actually invited us to go eat street food with him in Bangkok. And I am a hundred and ten percent keen to go, and I think it would be an amazing experience. So that's that's what we get to look forward to in the new year. We have to somehow coordinate our schedules <laughs> to go. I think we can make this one happen. Uh, another big uh, interview that we had this year was with the one, the only, the swearing Gordon Ramsay. He didn't quite swear, though, did he? No, no. That's what everyone asks me when, when I tell them I interviewed Gordon Ramsay. Did he swear? And no, he didn't. He was, he was quite the gentleman, I have to say. The celebrity chef was in town opening his third restaurant in Hong Kong called May's Grill. And you got to speak to him about his life story. Was there anything that shocked you or you didn't know about him? No, he pretty much went through, um, you know, his life. But it was just nice how he told us all the anecdotes, in particular when he got his Michelin star and just the whole story behind it and how he was taken, you know, in the corner of the restaurant and he was told by the Michelin people, like, this is going to happen. And he was just like, and then after service was over, he closed the restaurant, opened champagne for everybody. Mm. So I just thought that was a really nice story. Mm. Uh, Another big thing this year has to be the boom of plant-based meat. How do you feel about that? You know, this year... It started off with um, a plant-based egg mixture called Just Scramble. I think it's, it's changed names to Just Egg now. And then we had Beyond Meat and then Impossible Meat. And now we have Omni Pork, which is actually a Hong Kong entrepreneur has come up with this product that is now available retail. And It's just very interesting to see how all these things came in one year Mm. and all to Hong Kong, almost all at once. And it's just creating another new um, venue, new platform for chefs and and regular cooks like us to experiment and do things with it. And it's really interesting in a city like Hong Kong that seems to run off meat, that you can now have these options. And we'll see how that goes into 2019. And so many restaurants are getting on the bandwagon offering these options as well. I think that's really neat. That's really excellent. Now, talking about going to 2019, we have to end this by asking, what is your food trend prediction for next year, Bernice? Well, seeing how things are going in terms of restaurants opening and closing, it's kind of like the wealth gap in terms of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. We're seeing more fast food restaurants opening and more high-end restaurants opening and nothing much in between. And I'm sorry to say that maybe in the coming year, it's gonna ha- this, this gap is going to get wider and wider. I, I'm sorry it's a pessimistic note, but that's what I'm seeing. So either fast, you're either going to go fast food or white cloth fine dining. That's yeah, it. Yeah, because that's, that's what people's budgets are these days, unfortunately. Mm. So what about you, Alkara? What, what do you think for next year? 
I think in terms of if we look at you know what's been big in America and particularly in, in Australia in the last few years that maybe hasn't hit Hong Kong, I think in terms of a cuisine, I think we'll see the rise of Vietnamese food. Obviously, it's still it's very popular in the city and there are many restaurants, but I really feel like in Western cities, Vietnamese food is super trendy, like the banh mi uh, sandwich. It's just almost around every corner in Australia you can get one and they've got really funky stores selling them. And I feel like that will be the, the trend of next year in terms of a cuisine. Uh, but in terms of just like an overall trend, I think we'll see the continuation of this uh uh, fake meat, plant-based meat trend, but I think it will it will grow not just right now that you have all these these kind of substitute options, but I think you'll see more restaurants actually getting getting on board with just having more vegetarian options. So not particularly. So it's like veganism won't be a joke anymore, or it won't be just a a, a, a fringe thing. Yeah, it just so like oh, we've got the omni pork or the impossible burger. It's going to actually be uh, they realize that their clientele want to eat more just plant-based food in general. So. Well, we're seeing that at PDT actually already. They do have a burger, but it's an impossible burger, and that that's it mm. on the menu. So, so take that, it or leave it. Perhaps uh, you know it, it could grow further from there. So that's all we have for you this year on Eat Drink Asia. Don't forget, you can always keep up to date with the latest food news, video features, and reviews on SAMP.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, and I'm at, at Beijing Calling, and Alkira at Alkira Reinfrank. And we'd love to hear what you've been dining on, any tips, rumors, or recommendations you've got. Happy holidays and happy eating.